working in our favor. Amen. Bible says all things work together for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that this morning? Amen. He's working it out. He's working it out and he's working it out for your good and for his glory. Amen. Amen. There's such a sweet presence of the Lord here this morning. You know, I'm sitting back there and I'm realizing uh, our greatest treasure at Rebirth is not our resources. You know, I'd love to have a few business tycoons tithing a billion rand so we could uh, build the facilities that would make church more comfortable. But our greatest resource here are our people. We have such precious hearts and I wouldn't trade you for silver and gold. Amen. I'm so sweet, eh? But I'm not going to give a sugar-coated gospel. <laughs> Amen. Just be careful of those sweet preachers, eh? Be careful. They have rotten teeth. Amen. Thank you so much, Sia. What a beautiful servant heart you have. Um, you know, it's, it's very rare you find someone that's tremendously skilled. Uh, well trained in the arts of, of music and then still have a beautiful humble heart accompany that and I know this for, for sure and for certain God's going to take you places and when you get there please remember me <laughs> Amen Family turn with me to the book of Psalms we announced last week that we are diving into the book of Psalms we are now in Psalms 4, and if you know our preaching program and plan, you know that we break every series with a psalm. So last week we, we were in, um, and we concluded the Gospel of John um, at the Book of Signs in chapter 11. Book of John, Gospel of John is basically divided into... Uh, two parts, it's the book of signs and it's the book of glory. So from chapter 1 to 11 you have seven signs that John ties his narrative to and then the, from chapters 13 to 20, 21, 22 you have, uh, you have him tie uh, the rest of the narrative to Jesus returning to the Father that last week from Thursday um, through to his resurrection and this week we are at Psalm 4. Uh, I'll encourage you, uh, if you get a chance, please go back and listen to Psalm 1 on our Podbean podcast. We laid down a foundation of what these psalms are about, the types of psalms, um, the importance of the Hebrew literature that is employed uh, in the compiling and writing and recording of the psalms. We spoke about parallelism and the evocative uh, figurative language that the psalmist employ. So I encourage you to go back. Uh, it's important to understand uh, some of those technicalities uh, around genre, uh, literature, uh, because scripture is conveyed in a literal sense, but it is carried by grammar, 
it's carried by genre and it's carried by figures of language and the rule applies to the book of Psalms. Are you still with me family? Are you at Psalm chapter 4? And I'm reading from the New King James translation. And the first thing we are told about the psalm is that it is a psalm that is handed over to the chief musician uh, and is to be sung with flutes. Your translation may say stringed instruments. And we also have the psalm attributed to King David in the superscription. Verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Remember, this is David crying out to the Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to my voice, to the voice of my cry. Oh, sorry, I'm in, I'm in Psalm 5. Oh, Father Abraham. Oh, guys, I have too many kids. <laughs> I have too many sleepless nights. Oh, I'm wondering why I sing flutes over here. Just take this opportunity to drink my coffee. <laughs> Next week's sermon. <laughs> Oh, Lord, forgive me. Okay, Psalm 4. To the chief musician with string instruments, a psalm of David. Uh, that's what the superscription reads. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long? Will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself. Or know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed. And be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that the grain and wine have increased. I will both Lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen. This is God's word. And there's nothing better I can say to you this morning than what I've just read to you. A quick summary of Psalm 4 and an introduction into Psalm 4. Psalm 4 arises out of the context of difficulty teaches us something about praise is that praise can come out of struggle yeah. you can still find the reason to praise God even in your deepest struggles the psalmist seems to be encountering an unspecified challenge and troubling circumstances his approach to the psalm though is beautiful is graceful and he has this quiet confidence in God during a time of great distress. There are few people I know, including myself, that can hold quiet in God 
when all the sirens of hell are sounding. But here we see David hold his peace and hold his quiet confidence in God. Psalm 3 and 4 share similar features. There's many similarities between them and many scholars believe that these two psalms are coupled, they appear. Both Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 are attributed to David. Both psalms can be categorized as personal lament psalms. We spoke about uh, how you get different types of psalms and this is a lament psalm, a personal lament psalm. Both psalms, Psalm 3 and Psalm, in psalm 4, David is dealing with enemies. The distinction here between his enemies is that in Psalm 3, the threat is physical. And in Psalm 4, the threat is psychological. And the attack in Psalm 3 is aimed at physically killing him. But the aim of the attack in Psalm 4 is aimed at psychologically debilitating him. And sometimes the enemy, if he cannot wipe you out, he'll wear you out mentally. And, that, and to such a point where you die before you even hit the grave. Psalm 3 refers to David as rising up in the morning, where Psalm 4 refers to David at night time during sleep. Some references cite Psalm 3 was sung by the Jews during the morning time, and Psalm 4 was sung during the evening time. One of the key literary features of the psalm is the way that the Hebrew words and roots are repeated. And the reason why the psalmist and David repeats these Hebrew words is, is because he's aimed at creating a contrast and a sense of reversal through the entire passage. And so, uh, what do I mean? I mean, these repetitions create a contrast and comparison. So in verses 1, he speaks about, when I call, answer me. In verse 3, he says, Lord, hear me when I call. It's a contrast. He speaks about the God of my righteousness in verse 1. And then in verse 5, he speaks about the sacrifices of righteousness. You have him appealing to his enemies, saying, meditate in your heart on your bed. And then in verse 7, he speaks about him laying down and sleeping in peace in his bed. And so he creates this contrast, and this contrast seeks to support an overriding motif in the psalm, which speaks to the Lord, who hears when we call. That is the theme of the psalm. The Lord hears when we call. In other words, He still answers prayers. Amen. My Bible topic this, eve, this morning sorry, is around the missing letter in our acronym of prayer. I'm not sure if you had this experience, but when, when I was an early Christian and uh, just gave my heart to the Lord, we, we had various uh, methods and formulas that were given to us to help us how to pray. And one of those, uh, one of those formulas was an acronym uh, X. You remember that? A 
which stands for adoration. It means when you come before God, you praise Him, you adore Him. And in C stands for confession. Now that you've praised Him, you can confess your sins before Him. And then the T speaks to thanksgiving. In other words, we come into His courts with praise. We come into His in, in, in through His gates with, with thanksgiving. We come and we say thank you. And then the S stands for supplication. Now we can ask. Now that the formalities and the protocols have been observed, we can now ask Him for what we desperately need. And while this is a helpful uh, acronym uh, in teaching us how to pray, there's also an important component missing in this approach to God in prayer. With this missing component and this missing letter, it leaves our prayers a bit unreal and unauthentic. When we employ this com component of, of, of prayer, we now have a prayer that's more honest and real and raw and sincere. And I believe this component is the missing form and practice of prayer in the church and in the life of the believer today. It's the missing letter L. Not loser. <laughs> my, my cousin used to do this to me. Bonita, she said, loser. <laughs> no. The L stands for lament. Lament. Reason why I say without lamenting and without this component of prayer, our prayers are unreal is because laments help us to express our hearts before God. When we're going through tough times. And there's no book that shows us the importance of lamenting like the book of Psalms. Mm -hmm. There are nine types of Psalms according to C. Hassel Bullock. The Psalms of praise, the Psalms of thanksgiving, the Psalms of thank, of trust, the Psalms of the earthly king, sometimes referred to as royal Psalms, the Psalms of the heavenly king, we speak to uh, God's kingship. There's wisdom Psalms, there's Torah Psalms like Psalm 1, and then there's uh, imprecatory prayer, uh, Psalms, which refers to the psalmist cursing his enemies and pronouncing judgments on them. And then we have lament Psalms. There are two types of lament psalms uh, in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter. There's the individual laments and there's the communal laments where the psalmist speaks on behalf of the nation and complains and expresses his grief on behalf of the nations. And he says, why, Lord, have you allowed this to happen to us as a people? There are around 65 out of 150 psalms. There are 65 psalms of lament. This underscores the importance of bringing our griefs and struggles to God. Lament psalms are the, psalm, are the psalms where, where the author or psalmist 
uh, has conversations to God about the pain and the struggle and the sickness and the disappointments and the frustrations that they are experiencing in their lives. And so it's important not just to see laments as complaints, as mere complaints or mere grievances or, or grumbling before the Lord. It is actually a reach for hope. Laments are a reach for God in the middle of a crisis. And it's a powerful tool that God uses to help us navigate through our pain and struggle. Carson stated that there is no attempt in scripture to whitewash the anguish of God's people when they undergo suffering. They argue with God, they complain to God, they weep before God. Their faith is not a faith that leads to dry-eyed stoicism but to a faith that is robust to the point where they wrestle with God. Every lament in the Psalms is designed to become some kind of pathway towards hope and faith in God. Laments have several features, mainly four features. Firstly, they typically start out with a prayer or cry out to God in prayer. Secondly, you'll find that the psalmist will bring the issue and complaint before God. Thirdly, he will request for mercy and deliverance. And lastly, you'll find that the lament does not typically end in despair and in a complaint. It ends with a high praise. In other words, it's okay to come to God with your complaints and your griefs and your despair and with your snot and tears. But when you are done praying, find your hope and confidence in God. Amen. Jesus himself found himself in times of lamenting. When he came to Jerusalem in Luke, Luke 19, he looked over Jerusalem and he wept. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you like, like a hen would gather her chicks. Jesus lamented when he came into the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's about to approach the, the, the cross, he cries out and, and, and he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. Jesus found himself even on the cross lamenting when he took up a lament psalm, Psalm 22, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Laments are an instrument that helps us navigate through our pain and struggle. Our greatest hope in all of our lamenting said, one day there will be no more lamenting. Revelations 21 says that in the new Jerusalem, he will wipe away every tear. Amen. And death will be no more and there will be no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. None of the former things. Now when we get into our psalm, our psalm can be divided into four parts. Firstly, there is a superscription. 
secondly in verse 1 David speaks to God thirdly from verses 2 to 5 David speaks to men and lastly between verses 6 and 8 David now turns to God and speaks to God again so there's a superscription David speaks to God in, in verse 1 in verses 2 to 5 David speaks to men then from verses 6 to 8 David now turns back to the Lord and speaks with God let's look at our superscription if you remember our first sermon on the book of Psalms superscriptions according to Hengstenberg are as old as the Psalms and the scriptures themselves they were placed there by the original authors of the Psalms they are inspired they are not insignificant details the purpose of superscriptions is that it's designed to inform the reader about who wrote the song and how the song was to be sung and sometimes they tell us a little bit about the nature of the psalm and what type of psalm it is and in some cases it gives us an idea to the historical setting of the psalm when we looked at psalm 3 we read about how psalm 3 was written out of david's experience in the superscription uh, while fleeing from his son absalom who usurped the throne and it was the superscription that gave us that detail so we could refer to Samuel, 2 Samuel, and read about the context of what actually took place. So from the superscription we learned, firstly, that this is a psalm of David. David wrote the psalm. He is the author. Secondly, we learn that while Psalm 3 helps us place that particular psalm in a historical setting all we have here in Psalm 4 is the information that David tells us that that this psalm was handed over to the chief musician to the choir master there are over 55 references in the Psalms of superscriptions that indicate that the psalms were handed over to the musical director or the choir master so what we gather from this is that there was an appointed worship leader or a minister of music in the tabernacle and in the corporate assembly many times we overlook this detail and i've overlooked these these details for many years while reading the psalms but but this superscription teaches us a few important truths firstly consider that Psalm 4 is a testimony of David's struggles and victories and he hands this testimony in song form to a musical director and he says let the whole congregation sing it so what we learn here firstly is that the struggles we go through and the testimonies we have extend beyond our private world yeah. in other words the struggles you go through and the testimonies you have are meant to bless others mm -hmm. yeah. and that's what we learn from this our testimonies are designed to help strengthen the faith of the assembly 
of the church. Secondly, we learn that the fact that David handed this testimony over to a music director to be sung. The fact that David handed his struggle and his testimony over to a choir director to be sung underscores the important role that music plays in our challenges. That sometimes when you are going through a struggle, you need to sing your way through. You need to praise your way out. Because praise is a weapon. That's what the Bible says in Psalm 32. It says that the Lord shall surround us with songs of deliverance. That's why in Isaiah 61, the Bible says, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Sometimes the best way to confront your deepest challenges and your darkest times is a simple method of singing your way through. Find yourself a song. Put that song on repeat. You sing it day in and day out. You sing it week in and, and week out. That will be your song of deliverance. And lastly, we learn that in this song, song being handed over to the music director, it was handed over for the entire congregation to sing together. In other words, we come together in fellowship to sing together and express our confidence in God together. Even in times of struggle, even in your darkest, lowest times, we come to church together to sing together. So I cannot understand how people would avoid the presence of God when they are going through a struggle. People say, hey, brother, I'm just going through something. I'll, I'll see you in church in a few weeks. No! We come together to worship through our struggles. Getting into verse 1, we look at our first trophy. Bible says, David cries out and says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. The very first truth we are introduced with in verse 1 is that this psalm begins with prayer. The fact that this psalm begins with prayer should remind us that prayer should be our first response and not our last response. And we've created, sometimes unintentionally, we've created this impression about prayer that prayer is a last resort. You know, and, and we don't often mean it and, and, and I've been guilty of this myself and, and you know, you know we, when we've tried everything else we usually typically say ah, there's nothing left to do but pray we are called according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to pray without ceasing because if we're not praying we strain. And if the pastor is not praying, the pastor's playing. And it was Halton who said, When we pray, God hears more than we say. 
when we pray God answers more than we ask when we pray God gives more than we can imagine on his time and in his own way God hears your prayers and God answers your prayers Scudder goes on to say that God answers our prayers in four ways firstly no not yet secondly no I love you too much thirdly yes I thought you'd never you'd never ask and fourthly yes and here's some more perhaps the real reason why we haven't seen the answers to prayer is because we simply do not pray and you can sense David's desperation when he begins to lift up his voice to the Lord. He says in three imperatives, he says, hear me when I call, have mercy on me, hear my prayer. You can sense the desperate plight and struggle that he is going through and he almost comes across presumptuous. Like he's bypassed every protocol. And he approaches God in no uncertain terms. He lays aside all the niceties and, and all the formalities. And he gets vulnerable before God like a man in dire need. And this is what I love about the Psalms. The Psalms introduce us to a wide range of emotions of men and women who cry out to God in an honest and sincere way. When God saved me, my prayer was, Lord, I hate you. Why are you putting me through this? When are things going to come right? Ironically, you heard me. <laughs> God wants us to be real and authentic. Put aside the polyphonic prayer tone. Oh, Lord, my God. Please, in the name of Jesus, get down on your knees in a real, sincere, honest way and say, God, when are you going to do it for me? You've done it for Pastor Clinton. You've done it for, for, for Sister Marge in the corner over there. When are you going to do it for me? Golden Gate states that the Psalms allow us to be real and transparent with God within a theological register. Yeah. But I want you to notice in verse 1 the description that David uses and applies to God. Or in uh, today's context, the handle that he uses for God. He refers to God as the God of my righteousness. This is a title he uses a God that is used nowhere else in scripture. Some translations state my righteous God or that God is righteous. And so, and so he is. He is. But this is not what David means and this is not what the Hebrew implies. The Hebrew implies that God is the God of my righteousness. And what he means by this is that Lord the righteousness I have is not inherent it's derived you are the god of my righteousness the the righteousness i have right now and possess is cannot be attributed to my own nature and my own good behavior and my own morality i can lay no claim or any merit to 
who I am as a man and child of God. The righteousness I have is not my own. It's a righteousness that comes from you. It's a dangerous, deceptive place to be when you are found in your own righteousness. Nothing more dangerous to a man's salvation than for him to be self-righteous. And what do we mean by your own righteousness? One of the best ways I can describe it for you is that when you are attempting to serve God in your own righteousness, it's an attempt to provide your own standard for salvation. It's an attempt to create your own version of the gospel. And it's a version that doesn't penetrate your heart. And it's a version that doesn't change your lifestyle. And it's a version that doesn't even change your speech at times. And it's a version that is void of the power of God. All you can offer to God is lip service and not life service. And when, 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 when you stand in your own righteousness, you truly lack a fear of God. And when we lack a fear of God, we create a gospel of convenience. A gospel that is convenient to us. A gospel that doesn't doesn't put us on the cross to die. A, A version of the gospel that doesn't challenge our core values. And Paul states in Philippians 3, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith. In other words, Lord, I want to be found in the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that is imputed to us and credited to us by the basis of what Christ has done on the cross of Calvary. We can lay no credit to this righteousness. And David says, you are the God of my righteousness. And here we see in verse, in verse 2, when we, when we take a, a sneak peek at verse 2, we see that what we gather from verse 1 and from the language of verse 2 when David says, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory into shame? What, what we see here is that is that David is in distress, he's in a troubled time, and, and he's in a tight spot. And what the term distress literally means, it means narrow place. It means to be in a tight spot. It means to have the walls close in on you. Have you ever been in a tight spot in your life? Have you ever been in a place where the walls are closing in on you and there seems to be no way out and no light at the end of the tunnel? 
and so and so david from from just verse one and two we sense that he's in distress he's in a tight corner he's in a narrow place but i want you to look back at verse one he says hear me when i call O god of my righteousness you have relieved me in my distress have mercy on me and hear my prayer we see in between two prayer requests we see a testimony you have relieved me in my distress. In the middle of talking to God about what he needs God to do for him, he pauses to say something about what God has already done. Yeah. And Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, that in this particular verse, this is another instance of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. In other words, in layman terms, what, what, what David is doing here, he's saying, Lord, you've done it before. Yes. Now do it again. Yes. In other words, he's saying, Lord, what makes this time any different? You've delivered me before. Won't you come through for me again? And what he's essentially saying is, God, you haven't brought me this far to abandon me. It wasn't difficult for you in times past. And it won't ever be difficult for you to do it again. And so he cries out to God because he knows that only God can get him out of a narrow place. And sometimes that's the best place to be in life. And sometimes troubles come to bring us to this place in life where we can change our direction. Where we can change the direction of our vision and we can start looking to God we look to our jobs we look to our loved ones we look to our friends we look to our connections we look to our own strength and capabilities and own ingenuity and God says I want you to look to me yeah. William Wenham stated that worship can be defined as a look in the right direction and there's a short story I love. It's called The Window by G.W. Target. <coughs> it tells a story of two men who are confined to a hospital room due to some illness. One man had, had to lie on his back all of the time. And the other man had to just sit up at least one hour of the day because the accumulation of the fluid in his lungs as he laid on the bed wouldn't, wouldn't allow him to, to lay all the time. So he needed to get up at least for an hour every day. But the man who had needed to get up for an hour every day, his bed was next to the only window in the room. Only window. And so each day for one hour, when that man had to sit up, he'd begin to describe to the other man in the hospital bed, what he saw outside of the window. The man began in bed, 
to love those men loved in that hour like never before in the day that's when they came alive as his roommate began to speak about all the things he saw outside of the window he spoke about the beautiful lake there were times he described uh, two fishermen that were by the lake and, and the catch of the day there was another time he would describe the skyline of the city in the horizon and the seasons would change and when winter time would come he would begin to, to, to describe the snow that capped the mountain peaks and this would go on for months and weeks as seasons passed and eventually the man who was confined to his back who wasn't able to take a peek outside of the window began to resent this man began to resent the reports that came from the window he was ashamed to admit it to himself but he just felt that it wasn't fair that his roommate had a, a, a window by his bed why did he get to sit by the window during this time his resentment turned to anger and his anger turned into bitterness and one night the man who was furthest from the window was wake was awakened by the coughing of the man by the window and this man was desperately needing to clear his lungs and there was no one to help him up so he looked over at the button and he tried to press the button to alert the nurses but he could never reach the button but the man furthest from the window looked at him and it would have been easy for him to press his button to call the nurse but he didn't and he chose not to offer any help and in a few moments the coughing ended and it was replaced by laboring intense uh, wheezing and finally there was a silence and the man by the window had died a few hours later the nurses discovered that the patient by the window had died during the night and his body was removed from the room and then the man who was alive quietly asked the nurse since i am now alone in the room may i have my bed moved to the window side and the nurse agreed and after the bed had been moved and he was alone in the room he summoned all the strength he had to pull himself up by his elbows and at last he finally got to lay by the window side and see all that was awaiting for him outside of the window but he made a startling discovery that when he looked outside of the window there was nothing but a brick wall what direction do you look when you in a narrow place do you look around do you look within or do you look up so David turns now from speaking to God and now he speaks to men who have been the cause for his distress he makes an appeal to them from verses 2 to 5 he says how long oh you sons of men will you turn my honor and glory to shame how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood Selah? but now that the lord has set apart for himself him who is godly the lord will hear when i call to him 
this is arguably the most interesting part of the psalm. This is where the psalmist shifts his focus from speaking uh, to God and invoking the attention uh, of God to appealing to sinful sons of men. And the language in verse 2, we, by, by, by observing the language of verse 2, we can tell that, that these men are the reason why he's in this distress. And Ross tells us that when, when David refers to these men as the sons of men, that it is a description and a reference to men who are of renown. These are prominent men. These are influential men. And the English translation doesn't bring out this distinction, but the Hebrew does. That these are men of influence, men of power in Israel. And David poses two rhetorical questions to them. How long will you turn my glory into shame? And how long will you love worthlessness and falsehood? So from the first question, we gather that David's reputation is being slandered and his authority as a king in Israel is being undermined by these prominent men. And as a leader in David's time, being king, his reputation meant everything to him. Because it can cause you to lose your power amongst the nation, even lose his position as a king. And if there's anything we learn about the importance of repetition, Robert Greene teaches us this in, uh, of reputation. Robert Greene teaches us this in his book, The 48 Laws of Power, where he stated that reputation is the cornerstone of power. And as a leader, your reputation is your most valuable asset. That's what the Bible says in Proverbs, a good name is better than silver. And, and from, from reading this, this, this description and, and from reading this question, in verse 2, we get a sense of the theme of, of Psalm 2, which plays out in a, in a similar scenario where in Psalm 2, David says, the rulers have taken counsel against the Lord's anointed. So we get that, that feel that, that these men have taken counsel against him and have undermined his reputation and authority as a king. Green further states that doubt is a powerful weapon and once you let it out of the bag with insidious rumors your opponents are in a terrible dilemma in other words all you need to do is sow the doubts of confusion and slander and gossip to undermine someone's authority the Bible says in Proverbs 19 verse 5 that a false witness will not go unpunished and he who breathes out lies will not escape. So David looks at someone tarnishing his reputation in a serious way because it's undermining his rule of power. And one of the most dangerous traps we can fall into uh, as, as a people of God and as believers is that we can fall into a trap of assuming that we never ever have to defend our reputations it's not always wise to allow a rumor to spread without addressing it it's times where we have to address it because it is important what people generally think about you when you're in a position of power 
On the other extreme, it's impossible to try and control everybody's opinion about you. It's too big of a burden to bear. And so the Bible never goes out of its way to encourage us to go and you know, try and defend our reputation all the time. And so what we, what we see in life generally is that when it comes to slander and gossip and, and, and this kind of, of undermining, we see that leaders are always the most vulnerable to this attack because leaders are easy targets. And usually we see it unfold in a way where you know, those who are spectators usually slander those who are participators. Yeah. It's like watching a soccer game. I can bet you now Remy and Lerone know exactly how to run their teams. <laughs> but to become the manager of Arsenal, for Remy to become the manager of Arsenal, and for Lerone to become the manager of Arsenal, or to even go and play in the field, is a different ball game. And so usually it's those who are seated correcting those who are running. Usually it's those who are spectators correcting those who are participators. And so leaders become easy targets. And one of the reasons why we encourage everybody to get involved in the house of the Lord is because once you get involved, you find out it's not as easy as it looks. It's not until you run a business that you find out it's not easy running a business. It's not until you lead a church that you find out, oh my God, this is what it was about. It's not until you lead a family and kids until you know that it's not as easy as it seems. And so from the second question, David goes on to say, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? This is an intriguing question because by looking at this double description of, of worthlessness or vanity, as some translations put it, and falsehood, this is a description that is always ascribed to idolatry in Scripture. Trimper Longman states that the second parallelism in verse 2 accuses the foes of worshipping false gods. Hence, we have some translations like the NIV that prefer a more concrete translation of the term falsehood and replaces it with false gods. And so now we possibly have an idea and a better understanding of the context as to why these prominent men have been distressing and attacking David. Their affections in worship have changed. They are no longer allied to the Lord of hosts. Their hearts have been turned to idolatry. And then in verse 2 we see a musical notation that we covered in Psalm 1. The term selah doesn't mean amen. It simply possibly means one or two things. A change of key in the song or a high point in praise where you probably need to raise your voice higher or it means uh, you know, to, to play the instruments louder. 
okay and this musical notation cella at the end of verse 2 now signifies a shift in the lament so the psalmist now moves his focus off from his enemies and tormentors and he now moves it back to God and he, he, he says this but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly the Lord will hear when I call in other words David is saying you have slandered my name you have undermined my position as a king in all of Israel but know this and and his enemies don't want to hear this he says the Lord has chosen me and he has sovereignly put me here and only the Lord can remove me from here we see David remind his enemies of a truth that they don't want to hear the truth of election that God has chosen the godly for himself and in David's case the statement was a reminder that he became king by the sovereign choosing of God and not by man's authority then we have now from between verses 4 to 5 David issue a strong appeal to his enemies he says be angry and don't sin meditate within your heart on your bed because the bed is a place of reflection and he says be still he says offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord now I want you to consider this that his enemies hated him his enemies plotted against him his enemies had nothing good to say about him his enemies slandered him and sought to remove him from his throne they despised him and they brought him into great distress and at any time at any point David as king could have annihilated them by sovereign power but what does he do despite them being guilty and them being wicked and them being worthy of punishment David shows us a heart of mercy he shows us the redemptive nature of God's heart he shows us the merciful nature of God by appealing and calling these men his enemies deserving of death to repent here is the message of the gospel and while we were all enemies of Christ while we were all deserving of death while we all defiled his name and had no interest in him whatsoever he extended a call of mercy and he showed us grace and he showed us love and he called us to repentance and even while Christ was on the cross he cried out Lord forgive them they know not what they do in judgment he's crying out for mercy while we were sinners Christ died for us washed us with his, with his blood and here we have what boy says a time where Despite David being slandered and injured by his enemies, David speaks to his enemies kindly 
and he tries to win them from their errors. And David pals out four imperatives. He says, be angry and don't sin. In other words, you can be angry with me, but don't sin against God. James 1 verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's okay to be emotional, but don't allow your emotions to bring you into a place of compromise and sin. Secondly, he says, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. You've been hostile, you've been conniving, you've been working, you, you, you've been working overtime to slander uh, my name and my reputation and to bring me into a place of distress. But think about what you're doing on your bed at night. Be still. Have a moment of reflection. Drop your arms and consider your ways. And thirdly, he issues out uh, another imperative. He says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Some translators prefer to render this reading as offer right sacrifices. And Boyce is inclined to believe that this is a call for these enemies of David to offer ritual sacrifices for their sins. He says, their sin is against the Lord and their sin of idolatry and lies and slander is before the Lord and they need to make atonement for it and then lastly he says trust in the Lord and Wilson states that it's not enough to make a ritual acknowledgement of God's righteous claims against you but now the psalmist calls for these enemies of David to put actual flesh on the bones of their sacrifices and place their trust in the Lord. This is the final instruction. It's a call for these men to live their lives in trust to the Lord. And then lastly, now third strophe, David now takes his attention off from these men. And he begins to speak to God again from verse 6. He says, there are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. And so now after dealing with these specific enemies, and now after dealing with these enemies on a micro level from verses 2 to 5, David now in verse 6 shifts to a wider lens. And it gives us insight into what the people are saying and the real cause behind the trouble. He dealt with the individuals and now he's dealing with the larger community and nation. And he lead, lets us into the conversation of their hearts. They said, who will show us any good? This is a question that relates to prosperity. This is the root cause for the distress in Psalm 4. Truth be told, many of the people in this nation have grown weary and have become frustrated with the hardship they are facing as a nation. And so they've turned to idolatry. They've turned to false gods in the hope of finding a way to prosperity. 
and Wilson states that it's personal benefit and profit that become the key to their religious alliance and practice. Which God will provide me with what I need? That's the God I will serve. The Lord didn't do it for me. Wow. Who else wow. can I turn to to make my living conditions better? And in contrast, the psalmist says that even in the face of uncertainty, trust in the Lord. There are many that have turned away from Christ because things started to get difficult. Because they came into the kingdom with the expectation that life will get better. Because the preacher told you when you come to God, he'll bless you. You know, and you, you'll start driving uh, fancy cars and, and, and you'll marry a fancy wife and you'll find a tall, dark and handsome man. And when you came into the kingdom of God, you didn't experience their prosperity. You didn't experience all that that was expected in your heart to experience. And now you've lost all hope in this faith that doesn't work. David now the latter part of verse 6 he recalls in light of the faithlessness of many he recollects in view of all those who have turned away from the Lord he recalls the ironic blessing not this Aaron here in the, in the crowd but he recalls the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6 and he remembers it in an abbreviated form and he says the Lord lift up his countenance upon me and Numbers 6 declares it this way the Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace he reflects back to the word of God the promises of God during this time of struggle during this time of the spread the, the stress and now what we see in verse 7 the psalmist initially began in distress and in turmoil and in, and in trouble crying out to God in desperation and now in verse 7 he says you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that the grain and wine of, of have increased he ends on a joyful tone this is the underrated power of pray, prayer and of praying have you ever prayed long enough to walk away from your prayer time with God confident full of joy ever gone into your prayer closet depressed crying snot and tears Lord, why have you allowed this to happen? Lord, why have things turned out the way they have? And come out of your closet like a champion of faith. Gone in the kitten, coming out a lion. Going a little scared, not need boy or girl. Coming out a fully statured, keen and sized looking man. <laughs> Have you spent enough time in prayer to experience the joy from His presence? 
It's okay to begin your prayers in distress, but don't close your prayers in distress. Find your joy. Because there's a joy that is unspeakable. There's a joy you can find even in times of distress. You can, you can be going through hell and high water and experience a joy from the Holy Ghost. Because your joy is not determined from your happenings. Your joy comes from the presence of the Lord. And when you begin to experience this joy, you find your strength. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Shardine states that joy is an infallible proof of the presence of God. In other words, we know you've been in the presence of God when you can smile through a storm and say, I'm trusting him. And one of the signs uh, of a Christian that, that's struggling and has lost their faith is a sign of someone who's been baptized in lemon juice. No smile. Man, when I, when I look at some of these believers, I don't want to be a Christian, man. Does that what it, mean, what it means to serve the Lord? Like he's whooping you with a cat and nine tails every day? Serve the Lord with gladness of hearts. With gladness of hearts. You serve a big God. And now the psalmist sets his heart to sleep. And I'm closing my lovely wife. He, he sets himself to sleep. And he makes the statement in verse 8, the closing verse. He says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And I want you with your crayon to underline the word both. Both lie down and sleep because one doesn't assume the other. In other words, you can put yourself down to sleep and not find sleep at all. But there is a sleep that the Lord can give you in the most narrow of places. They're giving you all kinds of beef at the office. Your marriage is at a strain. Your kids are all wayward. And the money is not right. There's a kind of sleep that God can give to His children. It doesn't matter what they face. There's a kind of sleep that He can give when you place your trust in Him. The Bible says in Psalm 127 verse 2, He gives His beloved sleep. Jesus slept, slept in the middle of a storm while experienced fishermen were panicking for their lives. That's the kind of peace he gives. Amen. And I'm going to end on what Craigie said. He said, at the end, the psalmist has seen that he is better off than his enemies. He has advised them to lie still on their beds in an attempt for them to consider their evil ways. And now... He gets to lie down on his bed and sleep the sleep of peace that only comes from God. Amen. Can we stand this morning, church?
want you to lift up your hands.